Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. It's 2019. Children who started primary school last fall will be young adults in 2030. That sounds far away, but it really isn't. What skills and knowledge will they need in order to be prepared for the jobs of tomorrow? What do they need to do or learn in order to be ready to use technologies not even yet invented or to solve problems that our societies haven't yet encountered? I'm Kate Lancaster. To explore what young people need to learn today to thrive tomorrow and why this matters for our societies and economies alike, I'm joined by Andreas Schleicher, Director for Education and Skills at the OECD and Special Advisor to our Secretary General on Education Policy, as well as the author of the 2018 book, World Class, How to Build a 21st Century School System. Welcome, Andreas, and thank you for being here today. Thank you. So let's start by talking about change. We hear a lot these days about the future of work, about how megatrends like globalization, digital transformation, or aging populations, about how these are radically reshaping our jobs and our lives. But what about the impact on education? In particular, how are artificial intelligence and automation, robotics, along with other new technologies, changing what we learn? The dilemma is really that the kind of things that are easy to teach, maybe easy to test, are precisely the kind of things that are also easy to digitize, ah. to automate, to outsource. In a way, the world no longer rewards you just for what you know. Now, when Google knows everything, yes. the world <laughs> rewards you for what you can do with what you know, okay. your capacity to imagine, to innovate, to think a thought that nobody has thought, to create something of intrinsic positive first. You're capacity to manage tensions and dilemmas. The world is no longer black and white. People need to navigate ambiguity. That's something that artificial intelligence is not so good yet. No, it's very great and very good in predicting from the past, but not so good in sort of managing different kind of <coughs> lateral constraints. And imagining uh, the future. Yeah, and our capacity to also mobilize our cognitive and also social and emotional resources your capacity to work with others who think differently than you, who are different from you, your capacity to resolve and manage conflicts. So those issues are becoming increasingly important, whereas routine cognitive skills are declining fast. They're actually so, disappearing so, faster than manual skills. So when you say routine cognitive skills, you mean simple maths, basic writing, very basic analysis. Tell us yeah, a little bit more what you mean by that. It's basically things that you can memorize once for your life. And, okay. uh, you know, some things are useful, but more or less, that's what you can look up at Google. In a way, for example, in, in school, in mathematics, success is not about knowing a lot of formulas and equations. Mm. Success is about being able to think like a mathematician. Now, that enables you to use Google and other tools in Science is not about what you know just about biology and chemistry. It's your capacity to think like a scientist, to design an experiment, to sort of identify questions that are scientifically investigable. To think, think, like an, yeah. think like an historian. You know, mm. History is not about names and places. It's your capacity to understand how the narrative of a society has emerged, has developed, has grown, sometimes unraveled when the context mm. changed. What does it mean for us today? Yes, exactly. Those kinds of epistemic understanding is really key for our success today, whereas the simple kind of content knowledge and the routine skills are disappearing. 
And I would imagine that some of the ways that might be applied in the world would be not to do what we know now machines can do better than us, but to work with machines to be able to apply some of those skills to developing not only new technologies, but to helping the technology be used in the best way. Yeah, and I think that's a very important point for education. You need to think about how we can complement mm. the artificial intelligence of our computers, not substitute them. Now, otherwise, we end up with second-class robots, not yes. first-class humans. <laughs> yes, exactly. We've had some other podcast guests who've talked to us about um, task fragmentation and about how robots aren't going to replace all the workers, but they'll replace some of our tasks. Yeah, you know, on the one hand, robots are going to take over some of those tasks, but they also will make our work a lot more interesting. Mm. Think about the work of a teacher. Yes. You know, the task of knowledge, you know, dissemination is probably going to be done better by technology. It's a lot more interesting to sort of listen to sort of or do experiential learning in a virtual laboratory mm. than to listen to an experiment from a teacher. But at the very same time, it's going to make the work of teachers so much more interesting. You don't have to do all the kind of bureaucratic administrative work, the kind mm. of just knowledge. You can much more focus on being a good coach, a good mentor, a good designer of innovative learning mm. environments. You can focus on the relational task and working with students as people. So I think like in many spheres, artificial intelligence and technology are going to make our life, our work a lot more rewarding and interesting. If we are prepared for this, I think the key really is those who are prepared for the flat world, for the artificial world of artificial intelligence, they're going to have, you know, amplified opportunities, whereas those who are not prepared, there is to be left a lot further behind. No. So what kind of education is needed today then? And, and how can we future proof it? Things are changing quickly. How do we keep what we're learning now from becoming obsolete? Yeah, you know, we probably talk a lot less about education and a lot more about learning. Okay. Uh, it's more about people taking ownership over what they learn, over how they learn, over where they learn, over when they learn. Mm -hmm. That's very, very important today. It's not about filling you up once for a lifetime, mm. but it's giving you the capacity and motivation to continue learning, to continue to expand your horizon every day. And that commands a very different type of learning environments. In the past, you know, you sit and that in a very passive way, you're a consumer, a teacher is a kind of actor in the classroom. Today, students need to develop a lot more agency. The learning is a much more kind of interactive process where we develop those kinds of social skills and capacities to continue learning and um, actually throughout our lives. And the kind of learning environments that we need to create to facilitate this will be very different mm. from the very kind of industrial work organization that we have today yes. where students are put to school at a specific age, they learn in batches, they're all tested at the same time on the same things. There needs to be a lot more personalization in this. So then what would a really inspiring uh, learning environment look like for you? A, a system that's doing it well or an example you've seen in your travels that, that, that is something we can all take away? I think it's important that students work in an environment where, they, where it's really tough for them, where sort of, there's a lot of demand placed on them, where there's a lot of interaction with classmates, but also with teachers, where learning is really a very kind of active form form of learning, where learning is personalized, where students are mm -hmm. giving meaningful choices to expand their knowledge, where teachers understand how students learn and how students learn differently and can support them individually, supported also by technology. I think that's the kind of learning environment that's what we need. Yeah.
And that's an environment where technology is not in a vacuum. It's not just here's the lovely, shiny new toy. It's the educational context to make that technology useful so that we can benefit from it. Yeah, you know, technology can amplify great teaching. It's never going to replace poor teaching. In fact, mm -hmm. we have a lot of data that's, and that's evidence suggesting that technology can make things worse, not better in the classroom. Ah. In fact, there are a lot of examples for this where, you know, just throwing a tablet into a classroom and having students copy and paste things from Google, you end up with things with skills that are a lot worse than those that are conveyed in very traditional settings. Mm. Technology really needs to be integrated well with the relational aspects. Learning is always a relational and a social aspect. There's a lot of data to support that the teachers are very important in this process. And, but technology can be used to give you access to the world's most advanced knowledge. Also, technology can be used to make learning a lot more interactive, more participative, more personalized. Teachers can see in a window through the into the minds of what every student you know, is working on rather than just correcting their work three days later. That's the potential, really. It's interesting what you said about technology opening the world for students. And um, I look at that in a sense of also in helping to give students values, helping them to be engaged with the world around them. Can you talk a little bit about that? And that's perhaps the biggest challenge for yeah. education. Education is no longer just about teaching something, but giving you a reliable compass and the mm. navigation tools to find your own way in this increasingly volatile, complex, ambiguous world. So students need to be able to make judgments, to manage tensions and dilemmas, to uh, understand that people think differently, walk differently, and be able to positively engage with that kind mm. of, of diversity. I do think those kinds of uh, civic, we often call them global competencies, they're increasingly important today. Mm. And just to be clear for our listeners, we're not saying that students need to learn any one set of values. We're saying students need to learn how to think critically, how to engage around them or uh, with the people around them and, and from there be able to generate their own values. Yeah, but the ethical dimension is probably the one that distinguishes us most from okay. artificial intelligence. Now, artificial intelligence is about knowledge is not about judgment. And that mm. is a capacity that right. is in increasingly important. Think about literacy. Yes. In the past, literacy was about you reading something, you know, understanding, decoding text that somebody else has kind of... I mean, you didn't know the answer to a question. You can look it up in an encyclopedia, and you can trust the answer to be true. Yes. Today, you look it up on Google, and you find 70,000 answers to your question, and nobody tells you what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's not. Literacy is about constructing knowledge, about navigating knowledge. It's no longer just about you know, reading and trusting information. So, again, the question of values, the question of orientation comes in. It comes in very early. In the past, you know, primary school, every all kind of orientation came from outside to you, mm. your teachers, your environment. Today, you need to be a good navigator. Mm. Speaking of navigation, um, let's talk a little bit about lifelong learning. What can you tell us about new ways of learning that are taking place outside classrooms and throughout people's lives? Yeah, you know, we used to learn to do the work, and suddenly learning has become the work. Mm. That's really the big challenge today, sort of to be able to continue learning through our life, to expand your horizon, not just to learn for your current job, but to think out to the next job, to create tomorrow's uh, job. And our institutions need to adapt to this. If you think about, you know, what do universities do well these days? They bundle three things, mm. their own content, they manage delivery, and they give you a sort of certification. And accreditation, yeah. And they make a lot of money out of this. Yes. In the future, you know, content is everywhere. You can access it without it going to university. Delivery, again, you, know, you can learn where you want, how you want, when you want. 
And accreditation, we're going to see a lot of alternative certification methods, micro-credentials, lots of things are coming up. So actually, lifelong learning is now a reality, at least. But what we also see, and I think that's a very important point, those who do not have the foundations for it are the least likely to benefit from this. So unfortunately, what our data show us today, that lifelong learning as it stands today is rather, you know, exasperating disparities in people's mm -hmm. skills that, rather than, you know, helping people to catch up. We need to do a lot. And there need to be better incentives. There need to be more flexibility in workplaces to give people more opportunities and time for learning. Probably people need to take more ownership and mm -hmm. responsibility for their learning as well. And well, that's that's a very interesting question. Who is responsible for pushing lifelong learning? Is it an individual's own responsibility? Is it a work with the social partners, with unions? Is it the state? Yeah, you know, I think it's really everybody's yeah. business. But individuals play an important role. You know, we drink every day. We eat every day. We have this natural instinct to keep our bodies alive. We don't have that natural instinct oh. to sort of <laughs> keep our minds growing. And our work environments are often not doing this. Our work environments are often ones that are very happy with what we do today. They're not stimulating us to think about the future. And I think mm. we need to work much harder on that. As individuals, employers need to provide a more flexible working environments, and governments mm. as well, I think, can do a lot more to incentivize and support people to invest in their skills. Well, I'd like to end on a more personal note. Uh, in your work, you meet many students, and you also meet their parents. And you're a parent yourself. So what advice do you have for all the parents listening? How can we help our children to become that kind of lifelong learner uh, and to become empathetic and engaged with their communities and with the wider world? If it's everyone's responsibility, what can we as parents do? Yeah, our PISA data provides some fascinating insights on this. For example, the simple question that parents ask their children every day, how was school? Uh -huh. now, just showing your parents that it matters to you what your children do in school. That has a bigger impact on the child's success than parental income. In fact, the well-being of children, incidence and intensity of bullying, all sorts, all sorts of things depend not just on the schooling environment. They depend a lot on the relationship that parents have with their children, the interest they show about the well-being and, and learning of their children. There is a lot more that parents can do than actually teachers can do, particularly in the early years of schooling. Well, Andreas Schleicher, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. To learn more about the issues we've been discussing today, go to www.oecd.org education, as well as to www.soundcloud.com slash OECD Top Class Podcast. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com OECD.